Live from the Merck Park, USA, I'm Tavis Smiling. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. So glad to see you and me back in stride again. Our phone number, 1-800-920-1580. 1-800-920-1580. All of our socials can be found at KBLA 1580. That's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Everything at KBLA 1580. Let me also invite you right now to download our app at KBLA 1580. Download the app and take us with you anywhere in the world. And listen to us in real time, but only if you download our app right now at KBLA 1580. Should you miss us any day in real time, check out the podcast of our program by going to the app, the website, Anchor, Spotify, Apple, so many places to get the podcast of our program and listen at your leisure should you miss us any day in real time. But I am delighted to have you along live with us today for the next three hours. You can also watch the live stream of this program by tapping on the KBLA TV icon on our app or by going to our YouTube channel. Let me also invite you to follow me on Facebook and Instagram at The Real Tavis Smiley and get Twitter updates at Tavis Smiley. Another great show on tap for you today in our second hour. Critically acclaimed novelist, screenwriter, and playwright Walter Mosley joins us for a career conversation. His new book, Every Man a King, a King Oliver novel, publishes today, in fact. Walter Mosley's rich storylines have a way of deepening our understanding and appreciation of black life in America, and I look forward to what will surely be a delicious dialogue with Walter Mosley today in hour two. In our third hour, we continue the month-long radio residency of the motivator Les Brown and his master class. You've got to be hungry following yesterday's theme of finding peace in the midst of the storm. Today's theme is how to maintain sanity in an insane world. You've got to be hungry with Les Brown coming your way just two hours from now. But in this first hour today, there are many ways, I think, to... um. How might I put this? Many ways to reimagine an America that can perhaps one day be as good as its promise. An America that regards and respects each and every one of us no matter. It seems to me then that one of the myriad ways to shift the cultural paradigm and build a new construct is to interrogate our present cultural infrastructure. Are you with me here? A cultural infrastructure that has been designed to maintain structures of inequality. And while it doesn't seem to be explicitly about race, it often is. Put another way, how do we identify, contextualize, and name elements of our everyday landscapes and cultural practices that are designed to seem benign or natural, but which in fact work tirelessly to tell us vital stories about who we are, how we came to be, who belongs and who does not belong. Dr. Kristen Ann Hass is the author of Blunt Instruments, Recognizing Racist Cultural Infrastructure in Memorials, Museums, and Patriotic Practices. I am pleased to welcome Dr. Hass to this program. How are you today? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing fine. Good to have you on, and uh, thank you for the time. Thank you for the text. A lot to talk about. Glad we've got an hour to so to unpack all of this, let me start with this. Um, that was a mouthful that I just offered to give uh, the audience a sense of where we're going to go uh, in this hour as we peel back these layers. But let me start with something basic, which is this. Um, cultural infrastructure has been designed uh, to maintain structures of inequality, as I said a moment ago, and as your book sort of lays out. When we talk, though, about cultural infrastructure, what are we talking about specifically? Let's define some terms, and then we'll jump from there, Dr. Hess. Sure. So, um, 
cultural infrastructure are systems of meaning-making. I mean, this project, this book, starts with the idea that it takes a lot of work to make fictional ideas about race seem natural. So to, to make the kind of lie of white supremacy seem like a base point at which the culture begins is actually a, a job that requires tools. And so cultural infrastructure is kind of a fancy way of saying elements in the culture that tell us who we are. So if I started with the question, how do we actually tell the lie about race in the culture kind of every day, um, I came to the, the, the idea that monuments in our parks, museums that we visit as kids, and patriotic practices that we participate in all the time are actually systems of meaning-making that have been involved from their inception in teaching us untruths in various ways about race. Doctor, that makes sense. It does make sense. Uh, what doesn't make sense is your phone line. It's horrible. So we're going we're gonna to step aside for a second. Oh, now we're going to step aside and try to fix it. Uh, I hate when we start these conversations coming out the blocks and the sound just doesn't measure up. Let's try to get this sound right. And then we'll come forward in our conversation. I hate to waste an hour with such uh, vital information uh, and not uh, be able to hear clearly and sound like the guest is underwater. So let's fix that. It's technology. It's real time. Uh, let's address that. And then we'll come forward and continue, uh, actually restart our conversation with Dr. Kristen and Hass about these blunt instruments and how we recognize racist cultural infrastructure in our memorials, museums, and patriotic practices. Put another way, what do these memorials mean? What storylines are they trying to advance? How do we buy into all the hype around these racist memorials? It's a Black History Month conversation, and we'll continue it when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Interrogating your assumptions. Of Let's get back to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. Our guest in this hour is Dr. Kristen Ann Hass. She's author of the new book, Blunt Instruments, Recognizing Racist Cultural Infrastructure in Memorials, Museums, and Patriotic Practices. We'll see if we can't get a more crisp phone line here. Uh, Dr. Hass, can you hear me now? I can hear you. Am I sounding any better? That sounds 100% better. The, the, the fuzz oh. is gone. It sounds perfect now, and uh, I'm happy. I'm so sorry. I apologize. No, it's not a problem. It sounds much better. Let's move forward here. So um, I was asking you a moment ago, um, these cultural infrastructures that uh, you write about in the text, um, why is it that you argue, and I'm not naive in asking this, but why is it that we argue that they've been designed, in fact, to maintain structures of inequality? Unpack that for me. Sure. So starting with monuments, um, people in the United States weren't really particularly interested in monuments and memorials until well after the Civil War. People in the early period in the United States were pretty suspicious of that kind of elaborate public celebration of heroes because they had thrown off a monarchy and, you know, they were trying to build something new. We got interested in monuments and memorials after the Civil War when um, women's organizations and political activists in the southern part of the United States were anxious about um, the ascendance of, you know, the possible ascendance of um, black people as powerful in the United States. They were worried about the status of white supremacy. So they did what they could to um, try to maintain it, 
by building these monuments and memorials. And the magic trick of monuments and memorials is that um, they are supposed to seem timeless and eternal, like they just sort of popped up in the landscape naturally. But they were built by people who were very explicit about wanting to maintain white supremacy. Mm. Um, I love that phrase, the magic trick, <laughs> the magic trick of monuments. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it seems to me that um, for a long time, that magic trick worked. Um, let me ask you a two-part question. One, why, uh, to your mind, did that magic trick fool so many people for so long? And then we'll come to the second part of that question. We'll take it a, a piece at a time. The second part of that question is, what happened some years ago where all of a sudden um, there was outrage in this country, and one by one, many, not all, but many of these monuments started to come down? We'll get to that in a second. But tell me why you think this magic trick worked and fooled so many people for so long, advancing this notion of, 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 of essentially inequality and, for that matter, racial inequality in this country. Yeah, and I, I think it's important to say that from the very beginning, there were plenty of people who were on to this lie that they were perpetrating and people who were writing letters to the editor and, you know, people wanted some of these monuments, most of these monuments, to come down um, the day they went up. But enough people were willing to go along with the lie, to accept the logic, you know, the Confederate monuments, they made the argument that they were mourning lost sons, that they were, that this was their heritage that they could be proud of, that it wasn't really about slavery, that it was about something else. And I think it was in the interest of enough people not to bother to think about it, not to bother to listen to the complaints Mm -hmm. and the legitimate concerns of the folks who were shouting about it. So, so I think it, it worked because it gave people kind of plausible deniability for being responsible for uh, ongoing inequality. Mm. There's another fascinating phrase, plausible deniability. I'll, put a pin in that mm-hmm. for, the, for the time being. We'll come back to that, I'm certain. Um, so what happened some years ago? Let me ask you, when would you put a marker on? I say some years ago, but when would you put a marker on what happened in this contemporary moment where people all of a sudden seemed outraged by these monuments in parts all across the country, literally from California to the Carolinas, and one by one, many of these monuments started to come down. What was happening in the culture, as you see it, in what marker game would you put on when that shift started to happen, when many of us were just um, incensed about these monuments that had been there forever? Yeah. Um, I think a conversation really started to stir nationally about bringing monuments down 2014, 2015, um, Black people being murdered by police officers, black people being murdered in their churches, stirred up um, anger, frustration, required people who didn't have to think about this on a regular basis to sort of start to think about inequity in a new way. So there was a kind of conversation happening, and then in 2020, the murder of George Floyd, it's super fascinating because as you say, these monuments, most of them have been standing for a hundred years. And suddenly there was an urgency to take them down. 
and people actually took to the streets and they toppled a, a, a lot of monuments mm-hmm. over the summer of 2020. And I think it's because um, people were so incensed and it was something that they could do. Um, but I think now that the responsibility is on us to to continue to build on, not let it be just a single moment of frustration, but to see that everybody kind of knew what these things were doing already, mm-hmm. which is why they went out in the streets when they were enraged and pulled them down. Um, and in order to, I don't know, in order to figure out how to stop repeating the lie of inequity. We need to understand not just the monuments, but the other kinds of cultural infrastructure that keep the lie alive. Mm-hmm. Let me let me completely flip it on you here. Um, and I would apologize, but I'm not because I, I, I mean, I'm doing it unapologetically and intentionally. But let me just mm-hmm. let me flip it on you right quick and ask you whether or not there are ways in which perhaps we overstate, overstate the toppling of these monuments. You follow me on this? Yeah. Um, do you mean that uh, they were something, it was something of a tantrum, you know, people who, um, well, not, well, not, who not, were... Yeah, not so, much, not so much a tantrum, but um, it, it seems to me let, me, let me go back to Dr. King. Dr. King once said that uh, we cannot legislate morality. Uh, yeah. And all he means, as you well know by that, Doctor Hass, is that you can't you can't change people's hearts, their minds, and their souls. So you bring this monument down, and I believe that symbolism matters. Uh, I believe that yeah. substance matters more. And I'm just wondering uh, now that I've unpacked it a little bit more, whether or not you know you you follow my my question as to whether or not yeah. there are ways in which we perhaps overstate the toppling of these monuments. I I understand and respect the question, and I think it's certainly possible to overstate it. The reason that I think it's important Mm -hmm. is it's hard to explain how inequity gets maintained, Mm -hmm. because people who live with people who have contact with people who don't have the same phenotype, the same skin color... Mm -hmm understand white supremacy to be a lie. But but there are still all these, the, you know, we still live with a culture that's really structured around all this inequity. So how does that, so for me the question is, how does that happen? How do, does something that, that most sentient, feeling, thinking people really understand to be untrue, how does it stay alive in the culture. And I think that kids walking through landscapes that tell them stories about who we are that are based in inequity and kids who go to museums and are exposed to stories about kind of the value of one culture over another culture, um, kids who participate in, you know, saying a pledge are required to say a pledge to a country that they understand not to value them. I think all of that, I don't think it's the most important thing, mm-hmm. um, but I, I, I don't know. I, th- I think it matters in, maybe I can return to the sort of 
phrase plausible deniability. I think it it matters in that it it creates a, a sort of a basic starting place in the culture that that enables inequity and and lets I don't know. Let's everybody off the hook. No, nope, I received that. I received that. I'm just, I'm just pressing, trying to, trying to get the best out of you. Yeah. And I, I appreciate that response. Yeah. Um, the subtitle of your book, I mean, the title is called Blunt Instruments. Blunt Instruments. The subtitle, once again, is Recognizing Racist Cultural Infrastructure in Memorials, Museums, and Patriotic Practices. Let me come to the museums because you just mentioned that a moment ago. Uh, we've been talking, and you sort of walked around this a moment ago. Uh, let's go right to it. We've been talking a lot on this program and on this station, and frankly, <clears throat> across the country, Americans are increasingly in a dialogue, given what Ron DeSantis is doing in Florida and what Abbott is doing in Texas and others increasingly are doing in red states across the country. Uh, and that is specifically this notion of, you know, of, of uh, pushing back against truth being taught in classrooms. Uh, we are obviously in February, Black History Month. One of the reasons I wanted to have you on to unpack this subject about um, our cultural infrastructure and how it continues to advance these racist notions. And again, these notions about who we are, who we are not, how we got here, who belongs, who doesn't belong. That's why I wanted to have this conversation in February against the backdrop of what we're seeing happen in Florida, uh, Texas, and other places. But the conversation has focused uh, almost singularly, certainly focused primarily on teaching the truth in classrooms. Here you come now with this text that raises this question for me about the truth that's being told or not being told in our cultural infrastructure through these memorials, through these patriotic practices, and in places like museums. It's a long way of asking how you would grade our museums on the truth that they are telling, the truth that they are showcasing, the truth or not that they are curating to your point that people go see every day and have notions of X, Y, or Z reinforced. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I, I would say that there are a lot of museums in the United States, especially after the murder of George Floyd, who are taking another look at the way that race appears in their museums, taking a look at how they, who is represented in their institution and who is not represented. Mm -hmm. And I think that's fantastic and really important. But like the monument that's sort of standing silently, conveying a very powerful message, um, Museums, they are powerful. They are intended to teach with authority. And I, for me, it was watching Black Panther. Mm. Um, there's, a, there's a scene at the beginning of that movie in which um, a hero in the film goes into a, a white museum. I mean, it's not, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's supposed to be the British Museum. Mm -hmm. And he walks in and he looks at a display of African art and he's having conversation with the fancy curator who's correcting him about his knowledge of the art. And he says to her, um, he, you know, I, don't worry, I'm going to take it. You know, you don't understand it, I'm going to take it. And she says, you know, don't be ridiculous, it's not for sale. And and he says, you know, well, you didn't, you didn't buy it. How did you come to have it? And he he ends up um, taking the the object, mm -hmm. and it sets off the whole plot of the Black Panther movie. And watching that, I thought, okay, if a comic book movie mm -hmm. 
can in one minute and 30 seconds make the point that everybody knows that museums are expressions of cultural power around race, Mm -hmm. right? That everybody goes in there and they know that those objects were stolen from the Africans who were visited by the British when they, you know, um, when they came into the possession of the museum, that, that just letting them sit as they have been lets that, lets that be okay and lets the lesson that kids who go into that museum, the lesson that they get is, of course, their stuff belongs to us. Mm-hmm. And of course, we are the, we as Americans are the masters of their stuff. Do you, do you think? So the, I'm sorry, I saw that. I, I was just going to say quickly, Please. the book is titled Blunt Instruments because a lot of this, it's not that subtle. It's not that complicated. It's a big blunt hit. Mm-hmm. And so, I'm yeah, sorry. I was interrupting you. No, no. Go ahead. The, no, you, you, you know, I, want, I wanted you to finish. <laughs> no problem. I was just going to ask you, and you may have just already answered, given that the title is uh, the title of the text is called Blunt Instruments, um, you may have already answered it. But the question is whether or not you think that this, uh, uh, trying to find the right word, this behavior on the part of those who curate these exhibits at museums across the country is a benign neglect or it is or is it intentional? That's a fantastic question. And I think in the case of the monuments and, you know, people say, oh, no, they're they're just our heritage. If you go back and read the speeches that were given at Mm -hmm. the dedication of these monuments, they couldn't be more um, violent, brutal, awful. Um, That's very clear that the intentions of the people who built those, it's more complicated in museums. Mm-hmm. So to say all museums are racist and they're teaching racist lessons is an overstatement. Um, very few curators in the United States wake up in the morning and, you know, want to um, go out there and perpetuate inequity and teach black children that they are less. Yeah. But they are operating in institutions that really haven't recognized their racist roots, no. the the money from enslavers that built them in the first place, the big cultural logics that inform them. And until they really recognize that, they're, they're, they, they, can't, they can't escape it. Yeah. So uh, uh, an example that's been in the news in the last... Hold that, hold that, you know, three or four years. hold that thought one second. We'll come back to that example in the news of what you're talking about after we do news, traffic, and sports. I apologize, we got to do that right quick, and then we'll come forward and continue our conversation with Dr. Kristen Ann Hass about her new book, Blunt Instruments Recognizing Racist Cultural Infrastructure in Memorials, Museums, and Patriotic Practices. It's a Black History Month conversation about how these structures continue to advance a narrative of inequality in this country, a narrative about who we are, who belongs, and who does not. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. And we're glad to have you tuned in. We're continuing our conversation now with Dr. Kristen Ann Hass, who is author of the book, Blunt Instruments, Recognizing Racist Cultural Infrastructure in Memorials, Museums, and Patriotic Practices. She is a professor, historian at uh, University of Michigan in the Department of uh, American Culture, and we are delighted to have her on in this hour for this Black History Month conversation uh, about these uh, racist cultural 
infrastructure um, pieces uh, known as memorials, museums, and other patriotic practices that continue to sort of uh, reinforce this narrative of inequality in this country, this narrative of of, uh, of who we are and, and how we came to be and who belongs and who doesn't belong. Um, it, is, it is fascinating when you think about the, the, the quiet ways in which these, um, these uh, institutions and these objects um, advance a notion essentially of uh, neutrality. It's really about an assumption of neutrality. Um, and while on its face it doesn't seem to be explicitly about race or pushing uh, a racist narrative, it really is. And so that's why back in 2014, 2015, you start to see so many of these monuments come down. People were in the streets, as you'll recall, in certain places. I can see the images right now in Richmond, Virginia, where people were toppling monuments. And so you saw that all across the country starting 2014, 2015, as Dr. Hass sort of put her uh, put her finger on the timeline when we started to rethink some of this nonsense. But here we are in 2023. And we're having these uh, organic, I think, and dynamic conversations, uh, timely conversations about how we are uh, wrestling with this issue of certain states, uh, namely Florida and its governor, Republican Governor Ron DeSantis, pushing back against the teaching of truth, pushing back against the teaching of black history, pushing back against African-American AP courses being taught. Uh, and so it's it's a broader conversation, not just about what's happening in classrooms, what's happening, how have we if I can put it this way, been bamboozled, hoodwinked, run amok, and led astray by these memorials, these museums, and other patriotic practices that continue in Black History Month and beyond to enforce a narrative uh, that some folk belong again and some people don't. Before news, traffic, and sports, by way of update, you have that now. I just asked uh, uh, Dr. Hass uh, whether or not on, uh, on the part of museums specifically, this narrative they continue to push with the with the exhibits that they curate, is this a benign neglect or is it uh, just um, uh, sort of uh, uh, inherent? And she was offering me an example of Dr. Hess. Thank you. Um, I The example that I want to talk about for thinking about is this benign in museums or or not is the example of the American Natural History Museum in New York City. Mm -hmm. And outside that museum, big, grand, I say museum, you can imagine what this looks like. Outside this museum, which was visited by, continues to be visited by 5 million people, mostly school kids, every year, there was a statue. And on the statue outside the museum was of Teddy Roosevelt on a horse mm -hmm. in a uniform, Details of his uniform made clear and all of that. And he was flanked on one side by an unnamed, unidentified indigenous person with a headdress who was partially dressed and standing fairly straight. And on the other side, he was flanked by a person who appeared to be African, who was hardly dressed, who was crouching, kind of standing lower, unidentified, not a specific individual. Um, so all these kids coming to the museum and carved into this very grand stone of the museum were the words knowledge, nature, vision. So kids are coming in to, to receive knowledge about the natural world, 
And the first lesson that they get is this lesson about a racial hierarchy, <laughs> right? Roosevelt is up on the horse. Mm-hmm. These other people are not individual people. They're partially naked. And um, that people have been complaining about that statue as an emblem of inequality outside the museum for at least four years. And the museum wouldn't let it go. They would not let it go until the murder of George Floyd stirred up all of this um, anger. And uh, just last year it came down. Mm -hmm. But when you went inside very grand entry hall to that same museum, you carved in the wall in um, beautiful tile and painting, similar messages visually and in the text. Um, And the museum inside, they have been working to sort of change some of what has been quite racist about their exhibits. But without, you know, how can you sort of make a little change to an exhibition inside when the kids already got that big hit of Mm -hmm. this is... and, And for the white kids and for the black and brown kids, that's a very powerful um, that's a very powerful message that they were receiving. So the people who built the museum and who then later put up the statue, which went up in the 1930s, it was very much intentional. Yeah. They, were, they were scientists of eugenics. They had a mission to convey. The people who have worked in the building ever since, it it's definitely seems to be less intentional, but it took them a really long time to take yeah. down that statue. A couple of things come to mind. Number one, we just literally on this program last week had an hour conversation about eugenics and the comeback, mm-hmm. if you will, that eugenics is making uh, around the globe mm-hmm. uh, as mm-hmm. demographic shifts start to happen. Um, you see people starting to re-embrace this notion of eugenics. And you've got some people out there who won't use the word eugenics, but are behaving in ways and uh, doing other things and saying other things that speak to the fact that they support this kind of notion, including people like Elon Musk. Um, we had an hour conversation mm-hmm. about that. J.D., give me the name of our guest last week so I can, uh, what's the name again? Adam Rutherford. Thank you, Dr. Adam Rutherford. Mm-hmm. If you missed that conversation mm-hmm. last week with Dr. Adam mm-hmm. Rutherford, go to any of our socials, check out the podcast, and listen to that conversation. Powerful, uh, arresting, and frankly, emotionally debilitating conversation mm-hmm. uh, for, those, mm-hmm. for those of us who are persons of color with Dr. Adam Rutherford. Uh, about uh, the reemergence of this notion of eugenics in our society, uh, stateside, and indeed around the globe. Here you come now, raising this issue of eugenics, uh, and I and I want to come specifically to this example you offered because there's something I think that needs to be underscored here that doesn't often happen, particularly in unapologetically progressive spaces like this radio station. Even people like us oftentimes look the other way, but it's worth underscoring what you said, and it's it's sort of hidden in plain sight. This is not a museum in Richmond, Virginia. Mm-hmm. It's not a museum in Charleston, South Carolina. It's not a museum in Birmingham or Bombingham back in the day, Alabama. Mm-hmm. It's in the heart of Manhattan. It's in, it's, mm-hmm. in, it's in New York City. I raise that because it seems to me that here we are in 2023, and oftentimes, too often to my mind, Dr. Hass, we give passes to those who are of our ideological ilk. Uh, because they're they seem more liberal, because they seem more progressive, because it's it's a history museum, it's in New York City of all places, uh, a liberal bastion of politics, et cetera, et cetera. And yet, this is the facility, the museum that we're talking about. How do you read that? 
I think it's I think you're spot on and it's very it's very common. I was involved in a conversation with people in a I won't name the institution, but mm-hmm. a, a fancy institution in Boston. Mm-hmm. And they were um, working on an exhibit in which they were going to display work of uh, people who had been enslaved. Mm-hmm. And they were really, um, they were distancing themselves as if being in Boston meant that they, you know, that their institution had no relationship to enslavement. And during the conversation, I, you know, on my laptop, I just did a Google search of who were the funders of that museum and who, um, how they made their money. And, you know, it was just to the surprise of anyone who thinks about these things. They, the the museum was built on money um, made by uh, slave labor. Mm. So so the idea that this is just a Southern issue um, is, it, it's long, uh, it's long overdue getting rid of that idea. Yeah, not, not, One of the... Not, not, not just Southern, but conservative in, in ideology. I mean, it, you know, that, that's the way we label these things, Southern, conservative, it can't be Northern and liberal. Right. One of the, one of the most heartbreaking examples of a uh, human put on display in museums, which happened in the United States, happened in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, hold, 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 hold that thought. I want to hear the story. When you say humans put on display, uh, I think I know where you're going, having uh, uh, traversed your text. Um, but when you talk about humans being put on display as an art piece, if you will, in air quotes, as an exhibit, humans being put on display in San Francisco. I think you can probably guess where this story is going to go, but stick around. You'll hear the full story in a moment when we come forward. Dr. Kristen Ann Hass, author of Blunt Instruments, Recognizing Racist Cultural Infrastructure in Memorials, Museums, and Patriotic Practices. And trust me, we ain't got to the patriotic practices yet, but she's got a deep dive uh, on things like uh, kneeling or not for the national anthem. We'll get to that as well when we come forward on KBLA Talk fifteen eight. Let's unpack a bit more with Dr. Kristen Ann Hass, who's author of the book Blunt Instruments, Recognizing Racist Cultural Infrastructure in Memorials, Museums, and Patriotic Practices. Why have this conversation in Black History Month? A lot of reasons, not the least of which is that it's in months like these where we celebrate our grand contributions that people read books and they go to museums and um, they, they attend all kinds of programs that are ostensibly designed to celebrate uh, uh, black contributions to the nation. And yet there is a way in which our cultural infrastructure, memorials, museums, and other practices continue to reinforce a notion, uh, frankly, of inequality in this country, a racist notion, uh, a reductionist notion. I digress on that. Before that break, Dr. Hash, you were starting to give us an example of one of the worst examples you've seen in your research of humans on display as an exhibit in a place called San Francisco. Tell me more. Uh, it's a story that maybe is familiar to people in San Francisco and California, but it's the story of Ishii, who was the last of his tribe, the last Yahi person who was discovered in the... He wandered out of the foothills when, when the last his last relative died, and he ended up at the University of California where they were studying him, and they put him on display um, in a museum, in the Museum of Natural History, as an artifact in San Francisco, and he he died not long after because he was exposed to disease that he had not been exposed to in the foothills. Um, there are other examples. There are awful examples of people being put on display. But the the extent to which they were perceived as 
less, so far less than human by the people who put them on display, I think is is clear to see just by the fact that they were put on display. Yep. Um, I, I'm sorry, make your point. Please, please go ahead. I, I was just going to say that it's also important to note that um, in the sort of larger context of race in museums in the United States, starting really in the 1930s, Individual African Americans um, have decided, you know, decided that nobody was collecting their history, mm-hmm. and they needed to start doing it. And there's a broad, that really, a broad network that really expanded in the 1960s and the 1970s of local Black history museums that are really amazing and mm-hmm. important and need to be part of the story because. They exist alongside these other institutions, and they have been pushing these other institutions to um, to see the the problem of their origins more clearly for mm-hmm. a long time. And they're they're an important part of the story. They are indeed. Uh, speaking of uh, San Francisco, when we come forward in our remaining moments with Dr. Hass, we'll go right to San Francisco, specifically to this issue. Uh, we've been talking in this hour about uh, the unspoken assumption the unspoken assumption of neutrality uh, in many of these objects and practices and how remarkably effective that assumption has been at reinforcing and denying uh, inequity. Uh, And as one example of that in the text, Dr. Hass talks about the act of standing for the playing of the national anthem as a piece of infrastructure that is designed to uh, to convey specific ideas connected to how our society functions. Again, who belongs, who does not. We'll go to San Francisco and talk about you-know-who, Colin Kaepernick, when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. She's Dr. Kristen Ann Hass. We've been honored to have her on in this hour. i got about four minutes left in conversation with her. Um, we've been talking about her book, Blunt Instruments, Recognizing Racist Cultural Infrastructure in Memorials, Museums, and Patriotic Practices. Uh, I want to close by going to those patriotic practices uh, and get you to unpack a bit uh, quickly here about the act of standing for the playing of the national anthem as a piece of cultural infrastructure, Dr. Hess. Sure. So the first thing to know is that the practice of standing for the anthem, genuflecting in some way in front of the um, anthem in front of the flag would have, for the first half of the existence of the United States, been um, upsetting to people. That's not who we were. It, the idea that this we have always been people who had these rituals is n- not true. And for me, the most salient thing to know about the Kaepernick story, which most people probably know the basic details of, is that the players in the NFL were not required to be on the field for the playing of the anthem until 2009. And that changed when the NFL started to take significant money from the Department of the Defense for advertising that wasn't labeled as advertising. So all kinds of patriotic activities that you see when you watch a football game that aren't you don't understand them to be an ad necessarily, but they were paid for. Mm. So Colin Kaepernick was being, you know, he was making a point about police brutality, and he was saying, I can't participate in this ritual that celebrates a country that allows this to happen. And 
to me, the fact that the NFL was losing their mind while they were taking money, so much money, um, it really complicates the story. Mm. It does more than complicated. Um, a lot of people don't know that backstory. That when you start taking money from the government, you start taking money from the Defense Department. Uh, there's a there's a quid pro quo relationship there, right? If they're giving you money, there are things that they right. expect. You have to have your mm-hmm, you have to have your people out there. So exactly. Kaepernick was protesting uh, police brutality and and the the acceptance of police brutality, and the NFL had to defend the 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 quick response of so many people to say. He's insulting the military. Mm. And, in fact, our anthem is not about the military. We um, People in the United States have a long history of being somewhat both very respectful and cautious about its relationship to the military. So so I think the, the Kaepernick story reveals how the... the play, the, the anthem was being used as a tool, as yeah. a blunt instrument. Yep. And that is the name of her text. It's called Blunt Instrument. Um, she offers um, some sharp analysis. Um, she looks through a very broad lens, and um, I find it fascinating, and you will as well, about the ways in which the narratives, um, uh, the tropes that we hold on to in this country are advanced uh, by everyday images uh, and structures that we walk past uh, that we are sort of uh, sort of like the Jedi mind trick, if I can put it that way. These culture, <laughs> this, this these culture infrastructures do a Jedi mind trick on us, um, uh, and it's worked quite well for all these years. The book, once again, is called Blunt Instruments: Recognizing Racist Racist Cultural Infrastructure in Memorials, Museums, and Patriotic Practices. The author of that text is University of Michigan historian and professor, uh, Dr. Kristen Ann Hash. Dr. Hash, thank you for the text. Thank you for this conversation. We enjoyed it and were empowered by it immensely. We appreciate you. Thank you so much. I was delighted to be here. Our great honor. Hour two of Tavis Smiley. When we come forward, conversation with another great writer, Walter Mosley on KBLA Talk 1580.